It's Thursday, June the 24th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hubs Carpenter, a distinguished policy fellow in journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that title, I cannot lay claim to the being the only podcaster at Hoover. Uh, rather than gobble up a good portion of this podcast, giving you each and every podcast we do at Hoover, why don't you go to our website, which is hoover.org, and check for yourself. Go to the Publications tab, then go to where it says Podcast, and you see the whole gamut of what we have here. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly Pod Blast, which gives you the best of our podcast each month. Hoover Podcast is one part of Ideas Defining a Free Society. My guests today are my Hoover colleagues, David Brady and Douglas Rivers. Dave Brady is the Hoover Institution's Davies Family Senior Fellow and a longtime political scientist and lecturer at both Stanford University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers, likewise, is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow at a Stanford University political scientist. He is also one of America's foremost authorities on polling and public opinion. He is the chief scientist at Yuga PLC, a global polling firm. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Thank so in 2020, we call this the state of the race. Uh, I don't think we could call that this in 2021 uh, for people like me who have way too much time on my hands, I suppose. Uh, I did a little math, 502 days until November the 8th of 2022, which is the midterm. I can see Doug Rivers cringing at the thought of having to go to New York City and count votes. Uh, 1,229 days until November the 5th of 2024 and presidential election. Uh, but it's not an off year in terms of elections. There was actually a vote in New York uh, this week. Uh, New York City held a mayoral primary. Uh, also an interesting result up in Buffalo. Um, rather than spend too much time talking about this, gentlemen, I'd like to get your thoughts as political scientists on this thing called rank choice voting. Uh, it's a popular concept here in the Bay Area, which is maybe your first cautionary warning. If it's popular in the Bay Area, look out. Um, but New York held this in its mayoral primary. And for those not familiar with ranked choice voting, the way it works, uh, everybody on the ballot, uh, you can vote for who you want to, but you're asked to also choose uh, a, make a second choice as well. And if a candidate does not get to 50%, then what you do is you go to the bottom of the list, whoever got the fewest votes, and you eliminate that person, but then you take their step, but then you take the second place votes for that candidate and hand them out to the other candidates, and you keep adjusting until somebody gets to 50%. Uh, the last time I checked, the leader in the New York election was Eric Adams, who's a, Brook a Brooklyn borough president. Um, but, gentlemen, your thoughts on ranked choice voting for all the complaining about uh, democracy in this country, voting reform, the big debate in Washington right now? Do you guys think that ranked choice voting has any kind of legs? So, Bill, uh Political scientists uh, think that theoretically ranked choice voting is a great idea because what it does in a multi-candidate election means that you don't have to worry too much about whether your candidate uh, is going to do well among other people because um, you get to uh, cast a second vote for another candidate uh, if your candidate um, is not among the top two, then that vote will go to your next most preferred candidate. And so it eliminates some of the strategizing people do. Uh -huh. uh, in practice, it's got some challenges. Uh, the first thing is it's not that you just have to pick your second choice candidate, you need to give a ranking. And so lots of people aren't able or don't choose to rank all the candidates. Uh -huh. um, and in theory, uh, you know, your third choice candidate uh, could, um, if your second choice, both your first and second choice candidates are eliminated, your thir third choice uh, gets uh, uh, counted. 
Um, in the case of New York, they aren't even counting the votes till all the absentees are received. Right. Uh, so this election may go on for a while before we know the outcome. Though I think most people think Eric Adams will win fairly easily, uh, that he was far enough ahead of the other candidates. Uh, it's hard to see how the, in this case, the Garcia and Yang voters could, um, you know, Yang will be eliminated because he did not finish in the top two. Uh, and presumably many of his votes went to Garcia, um, who uh, they had teamed up. But I don't think it's going to be enough to overcome Adam's lead. Right. Dave, the other contest that stands out was the mayoral race uh, upstate in New York in Buffalo. And the winner there, uh, India uh, Wilton uh, is her name. She is now the city's first black mayor. And she's also the nation's first socialist mayor since 1960. Here's what uh, caught my attention, Dave. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Uh, if you look at the vote in you Buffalo. You don't count uh, Bernie Sanders and... Uh... <laughs> In Vermont? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Burlington. Yeah, right. Um, uh, here's what caught my interest about the Buffalo race, Dave. Uh, the turnout there was about 20%. Um, and this sounds like a very familiar thing in New York with these summertime elections. You go back to 2018 and the congressional race in New York City where AOC is the winner. And in that race, about 12%. A similar dynamic here, Dave. The, uh, the incumbent mayor who lost in Buffalo, uh, Byron Brown is his name, he wouldn't uh, debate Ms. Wilton, just ignored her, whereas Joe Crowley in New York City, the longtime incumbent congressman, also blew off AOC as well. Uh, is this uh, I'm making a big deal about very little, or is there something here we should be paying attention to, this idea of low turnout, uh, low turnout elections bringing out you know, very, very strong people on one end of the spectrum? I guess that means that Doug gets the only word on ranked choice voting. No, you can do that. Bill <laughs> ran away so, from that topic uh, as fast no, as he I, could. I, have, I do have one thing. It, you know, the systems work. The Irish, yeah. the Irish have done ranked choice voting uh, uh-huh. for a long time, and it works. Takes a long time to count the votes, yeah. but it it uh, does. There are there is there are some strategies. People try and team up, and in the main and in the main race for Senate, they ran a third party candidate, hoping that that vote would spin over. So <laughs> it's not the panacea that political science. This uh, sort of hoped it was, but uh, it does it does have some advantage. And some people believe it gives you more moderate candidates, but we'll we'll see about that. Back to the question about uh, primaries. Uh, so it's the case just as AOC won, and just as uh, the mayor in uh, Buffalo was upset. Uh, we've known for a long time that primaries uh, for the House of Representatives uh, and in the Senate get pretty low turnout. It varies uh, quite a bit. It's it's much like the uh, problem of presidential primaries, where a high turnout is New Hampshire, where the president has to presidential candidates shake hands or have breakfast with everybody in the state. Even there, the turnout's only 30, 35 percent. So and when the turnout is low, then on the Democratic side, you tend to get voters who are much more uh, further left. And on the Republican side, you get voters that are uh, further right. So uh, there's nothing unusual about what happened there. It's pretty typical. It's pretty typical of primaries. Right. Uh, and going back to New York City for a moment, Doug, uh, one thing that stands out is um, uh, Adams, the first place finisher for now. Uh, he 
I don't want to say he embraced the crime issue, but he is the candidate most closely associated to crime. I think he talked about actually carrying a gun. Uh, he's a policeman in past life. And it seems to me, Doug, we saw kind of a morphing in that race. Uh, a couple months ago, we thought that maybe Andrew Yang was going to be the next uh, mayor of New York City. This is Mr. Universal Basic Income. Uh, so you thought maybe it would be an economics-driven election. But if, if Adams indeed prevails, uh, it might look like crime uh, uh, took over the New York race. Well, the first thing I would say about the polling that showed Andrew Yang ahead in the early polling, um, that was the reason I stayed as far away from this as I could, um, because it's very hard to, uh, in a poll, um, A, represent the people who will actually vote in um, a mayoral primary, um, uh, which is what this was. Um, and second, uh when people aren't paying attention, the person a lot of people who weren't paying attention heard of was Andrew Yang. Um, so he polled much better than I thought he would ever do. Um, uh, whether, um, yeah, I mean, crime, uh, there has been a, a rise in the crime rate in New York. Um, uh, Adams and uh, Yang, for example, um, did, uh, uh, focus on that issue more than the other candidates. Um, uh-huh. You know, it's a perennial uh, issue that moves people in urban elections. Um, so I don't think we should be too surprised about that. Um, it is remarkable that New York, being um, such a solidly democratic city, um, does vote more moderately in local elections than it uh, does in presidential. Right. So speaking of presidential and crime, I'm sorry, Dave, I'll get to you a second. Uh, the president of the United States uh, spoke about crime yesterday. He had a meeting at the White House to uh, talk with local leaders about this, and he came out and gave a talk, talked particularly about gun violence, need to get guns off the streets. Uh, I did a little homework uh, going back and looking at economists, YouGov poll numbers, something you cannot run away from, Doug Rivers, as you do these. Uh, here's what struck me as interesting about Joe Biden's poll numbers, and here we are five months into his presidency now. Um, if you go back to uh, January 21st and uh, the first economist YouGov sampling of the president, uh, 51% approval, 36% disapprove. Um, you then start, uh, and by the way, this is an advertisement for YouGov. If you go on the website, they do a fantastic, whoever, whoever set it up, uh, Doug, really does a great job. You could just track it all the way across and break it down, which I did. Um, Joe Biden's poll numbers are kind of like a clothesline in your backyard for, for several months. It's just his approval rating stays consistently just straight as an arrow in the low 50s. It disapproves around the low 40s. Uh, then you look at the last set of numbers from mid-June, and his approval is 48.6, and disapproval 44.8. But here's what's fascinating me, gentlemen, and this is something great that YouGov does. You can actually break down this poll into different categories. So I broke it down into Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Democratic numbers are not that surprising. Uh, the president has 90% approval uh, with his party. No surprise there. Republicans have coalesced against him. Uh, disapproval has grown from 71% to about 84%. I guess not a surprise there as well. But here's a here's a surprise, Dave. I don't want to get your thoughts on this. Independence. The first economist you got poll of Biden back in January has independence supporting him at 43 to 33. The last poll has independence at 34.6 supporting and 47.9 opposing. So he is underwater now with independence. So what, what is happening here? Well, he's uh, so first of all, while I fill in on that uh, independent category as uh, ideology. So if you uh, look at uh, so think of conservative, moderate and liberal, uh, we are more conservative uh, 
independents, people who say self-identify as conservative then identify as liberal. And it's the conservative, uh, it's the conservative independents who are most, uh, least approving of Biden and moderates next least approving. Liberals do approve of him, but there are more, many more moderate and conservative independents. That by the way is the same thing for Democrats, if you if you interact uh, the Democrat Republican uh, approval with uh, ideology, it turns out that uh, the Democrats are a little more heterogeneous. About thirty six percent of Democrats say they're either uh, they're either moderate or or conservative, where only sixteen percent of Republicans say they're moderate to liberal. Mm-hmm. And it's among those people that uh, moderates and conservatives, about 37 percent don't have that high opinion of Biden, even among Democrats. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in the midterm elections uh, of 19 uh, of the 2010 mm-hmm. and in 1994, it was uh, the people who abandoned the party in both cases were uh, Democrats who considered themselves moderate to conservative. So I'm watching pretty closely uh, their views on Biden and they are uh, less approving. They're still uh, moderate, still approve of him, but they're less approving than uh, the liberal wing of the party. Mm-hmm. Doug, what say you? Yeah, I agree with Dave on that. Uh, independents are uh, slightly more conservative than liberals. So they're going to skew a little bit on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. Um, Biden is about equal, I believe, um, in our most recent poll, uh, 46 approve, 45 disapprove among uh, moderate independents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's doing well enough among independents that he's not in trouble, but, uh, you know, he's, he's not, we don't live in a world any longer where a president's going to get 60, 70% approval rates. With- not unless there's a national crisis, Right. Right. Well, even then, I we'll see how long that lasts. Even then, it's fleeting. Uh, let's talk more about the Economist survey. Uh, Doug, you um, you passed along a few notes from this week's survey. Uh, the first thing you uh, talked about was anti-vaccine sentiment uh, among Trump voters. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, so we've been following this, and uh, as I have a lot of other people, and they've uh, noticed that uh, conservatives and Republicans are much less likely to have been vaccinated. So about a third of Republicans are not vaccinated and another 10% aren't sure what they're going to do. Um, I uh, assumed this was uh, part of what we saw in the last year of um, you know, Republicans being anti-mask because Trump was anti-mask. Um, but we asked in the economist this week, uh, do you think Donald Trump, uh, approves of vaccines? And surprisingly, what we found is that most Republicans think Donald Trump is strongly supportive of vaccines. Um, we do know he has been vaccinated, but I wouldn't say there's a lot of evidence he's strongly supportive of it. He did it, uh, um, privately and, um, hasn't really come out in a strong way for vaccines. Uh, It's Democrats who believe Donald Trump is opposed to vaccines. Um, So I think that's interesting um, anomaly there, which is um, on this issue, at least, uh, I think, uh, you know, the Republicans are viscerally more um, suspicious of uh, vaccines and masks. And it may be 
um, that they aren't following Trump on this. They're actually following their own beliefs that are independent of uh, Trump. Yeah, Dave, this is kind of this is kind of vintage. This is kind of vintage Trump, Dave. In this regard, um, Trump, uh, Doug is right. Trump has been vaccinated. He's received the Pfizer shot. Uh, Trump had COVID at one point. We forget about that. Uh, Trump uh, has told the world that he's been beseeched to do uh, PSAs, uh, urging people to get vaccinated. He won't do them. Um, he has, of course, praised warp speed uh, to the high heavens. So maybe that's why people think he is pro-vaccine. Uh, but at the same time, um, he is also a disturber that he was on Sean Hannity recently, Dave, and he uh, talked about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine being temporary shelved, and then said uh, went into the went to the dark side and, and suggested maybe this is all conspiracy theory by the government to try to boost up the, the use of the Pfizer theory. So uh, it's Trump kind of whirling the waters as usual. Well, I, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. You have 28 percent of Republicans say they will not get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And the reasons they give uh, those things. Make, yeah. Yeah. He's he's rolling the waters again. Uh, not, nothing, nothing unusual about it, but it is, in my personal view, a blessing that he doesn't roil the waters quite as often <laughs> as uh, he has over the last four years. But uh, that, yeah, I, I, that's all, what else could you call it? Right. Uh, Doug, your poll also has some numbers on uh, what voters think about what's going on on the Mexican border. Yeah, that's interesting because um, this there's some warning signs for Biden on this. Um, not too surprisingly, uh, Republicans, 90% uh, of them, describe the situation along the Mexican border as a crisis. Uh, but almost half, 49% uh, of Biden voters uh, also describe it as a crisis. Now, it's not they don't describe it as a crisis in exactly the same way. That is, more Biden voters are likely to say it's a humanitarian crisis rather than a uh, uh, illegal immigration crisis or a national security crisis. But um, it is the case that you know about half the Biden voters are quite concerned about what is going on along the border. Um, and if this flares up, I think it, it would be a problem for Democrats. Uh, it, uh, it's an issue that has to be handled pretty carefully um, because the public at large uh, does react uh, quite strongly to it in a way that's not particularly pro-immigration. And also the trust issue, the public, uh, I think your polling suggests that uh, Republicans get stronger numbers on the matter of who do you trust to handle this? Yeah, slightly. Uh, Republicans win slightly on which party do you trust more to handle uh, immigration and uh, the border. Um, and the fact that Republicans lose on most issues uh, indicates that's that's a issue Republicans would like to run on. Hey, Brady, you've given a lot of talks in your life. Have you ever given a talk at a uh, Lincoln Day dinner? I did uh, give a talk at a Lincoln Day dinner once, but it was uh, so many decades ago that I can't, I can't remember. Lincoln was still alive, right? Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Lincoln was still there. <laughs> I asked because of this. So for those not familiar, Lincoln Day dinners are run by local Republican uh, clubs around America to celebrate the, the 12th president's birthday. Um, excuse me, 16th president's birthday, also to raise money. Uh, it is a ready-made excuse for any and all presidential hopefuls to go to early primary states. Um, Here's what strikes me as interesting about this in 2022, uh, a very popular invitee to Lincoln uh, Day dinners could be, of all people, a Democrat, Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Doug, Doug, would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, so we ask favorability of a lot of people and sometimes, you know, on national 
figures like Biden and Trump and so forth. It's they're very stable and predictable. But once you go down a bit, um, there's some surprises. And uh, so we asked Joe Manchin favorability and uh, nationally um, among Republicans, uh, uh Mansion is plus 13. So uh, they are net favorable towards him. Among Democrats, Mansion is negative 26. Uh, he's the guy who's holding back the filibuster and will uh, destroy Biden's ability to uh, pass much of his program. Um, so he's become uh, a favorite punching bag among Democrats. Good, good thing he's not running for election nationally, right? Good thing, <laughs> good thing he's running in West Virginia. Because as far as I could tell, given the way West Virginia sits now, he's the last Democrat that's going to get elected from there in some time. But he's not getting invited to Jackson Day dinners. Yeah. Which and he's 77, he's 77 years old. So I don't know how long, I don't even know how much longer he wants to run. If he, if you he's don't think he's run. a young guy? Yeah, he's young compared to me, but well, relative to the world, no. He's young compared to the president. He's young compared to the Speaker of the House. He's young yeah. compared to half of the Senate. So uh, I guess he well, won't be speaking at Jackson Day dinners, although I guess we don't call them Jackson Day dinners anymore, do we? No, we don't. He has been canceled. Um, I, this is interesting to me because it's the question of crossover appeal for a politician. You know, the Kennedy School at Harvard uh, each year, they do a profile and courage award, and they love nothing more than give it to a Republican who just absolutely tortures the Republican base. Uh, Mitt Romney, I think, is getting one for voting to impeach Trump. Um, you know, write it down here, Liz Cheney's going to get one uh, at some point. Uh, they just love to gig Republicans with this. But is there any Republican in America who has any kind of vaguely similar crossover appeal like Joe Manchin? In other words, Republican who Democrats like and Republicans really dislike. Well, Susan Collins won a pretty big victory in Maine last year. Right, uh, right. Somewhat to our surprise because, uh, you know, she's not a popular nationally among Democrats. Yeah. But just a thought, here's a, a Democrat saying, boy, here's a Republican who's really doing our bidding. We like this person. No, I don't know. The only one they might, I think the Democrats would be sort of reluctance and they'd say reluctant. Well, if you have to have one like that, uh, Romney's okay. Yeah. And occasionally Murkowski, but no, I don't see anybody like that. Uh, Justin the Mash uh, scored some points, I think. <laughs> Who's okay. that? Justin the Mash. An yeah, if anyone who, yeah, if anyone who he was. I mean, what what would there, if you ask that if you ask who he was nationally, what percent would say they knew? Well, right. but but what's interesting yeah. there is what but what's interesting is what Doug just said, ex-Republican. In other words, you go down the, you start down this road and the road takes you one direction, which is out of your party. Uh, whereas Joe Manchin, as far as we know, is pretty much dug in as a Democrat in West Virginia. Now, yeah, Republicans would love for him to cross over and completely score up the Yeah, but it's asymmetric. There are not Democrats out there singing right. the praises of Donald Trump and making Republicans happy. Uh, it, it, we're in the weird situation where the Democrats are actually at this point more cohesive than Republicans. There are not a huge number, but some Republicans around the edges that are uh, running from the um, you know Trump orthodoxy, uh, Liz Cheney being Exhibit A. Right. So, gentlemen, we are, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we are 500 plus days away from the 2010 election. So why not talk about the next 2020, 2022, you mean. 2022, excuse me. Um, we get a little time off during the summer, Bill. Do we have to do this? Yeah. Hey, you agreed to do this. Yeah. <laughs>
So play along. Uh, I have a working theory here, and I want you guys to either play along with it or shoot it down. Tell me I'm an idiot. In regards to this, the idea that 2022 shapes up similar to the 2010 midterm election in this regard. And I'm not suggesting that the final outcome is going to be the same as 2010, because remember, the, the House results in 2010 were staggering. I think the Republicans picked up 63 House seats, which was the biggest gain since 1938, I believe. So I'm not suggesting a gain along those along those lines, but I'm looking at dynamics and here are the dynamics that have my attention. Number one, uh, Republicans running on a theme of overreach. In 2010, it was um, Obamacare. Uh, this time around, the whole idea of go big. Um, second uh, time, uh, second parallel would be uh, the idea of Democrats having a cross to bear Obamacare in 2010. Um, this time around, uh, immigration, among other issues, but also maybe the issue of crime, also something we haven't talked about yet in this podcast, critical race theory. Um, and then, but then thirdly, and this is where Republicans, I think, have a problem, which I'd like to talk to you guys about. I mean, that's the idea of the circular firing squad, the idea of primaries, contentious Republican primaries where Republicans managed to shoot themselves in the foot. And you saw this in 2010 with the Tea Party, the Tea Party getting involved in primaries. In some cases, Tea Party candidates went on to do well. I'm thinking of Marco Rubio in Florida, Mike Lee in Utah. But you also saw instances in states like Nevada, uh, Delaware, where Republicans did a very good job of snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, if the 2010 disturber was the Tea Party, the 2020 disturber would be Donald Trump and MAGA. So, gentlemen, am I onto something here, or am I just uh, am I just kind of blowing? Well, let me let me start by saying, uh, first of all, when you look at these uh, big swings, so when the Republicans uh, won control of the House for the first time in 40 years in 1994, and then when they won big again in uh, 2010. Uh, the first thing you have to say is that uh, where they won was they won in moderate, uh, they won in moderate to conservative competitive districts. Right. So there, so today there are far fewer of those. There are probably 30 mm -hmm. to 40 max districts that uh, looks like they could swing in a given right. election. And that's much less than in the previous elections. So the, so the first thing I want to say is uh, that's not going to be not, not going to be so big. The second thing is the issues that uh, drove it in, uh, in both cases was Clinton's health care in 94 and health care uh -huh. in uh, 2010, as well as the uh, cap and trade. Those votes really hurt Democrats from moderate districts. So I don't see that issue yet. Uh, the first uh, so Republicans didn't like said they didn't like the stimulus, the first Biden stimulus package. Uh -huh. But the fact is. Uh, on individual matters, did you prove the $1,400 check? Do you prove a $300? Majorities of Republicans supported those. So I think that if Biden uh, can put together this compromise with the Republicans, uh, the 11 Republicans and the 10 Democrats in the Senate, and they can get that through, I think that the likelihood of it being a very big uh, swing is is uh, is quite low. It doesn't mean that the Republicans couldn't just on the basis of reapportionment uh, take over the House, right. but it would not be a big swing is, is my view. Right. Doug, you went back and you actually looked at 2010 numbers. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I'm going to dissent from your view on this, Bill. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I went back to uh, the June 28, 2009 economist survey to compare it to the one we have this week. Uh, and a few things stand out. Uh, the first is uh, that Joe Biden is not perceived the same way Barack Obama is. Um, in, uh, at this time in 2009, 
35% of the, of the public thought Obama was very liberal and only 26% for Joe Biden. Right. Uh, he's much more likely to be perceived as a, um, as, you know, moderate to moderate liberal. Um, definitely not a conservative, but uh, um, there isn't the uh, view that he's an ideological warrior because he did not take up health care. Uh, he pursued a set of policies that are more broadly popular, whereas health care, at least at that time, was uh, a fairly unpopular issue for Democrats. Um, even among Republicans, um, 75% of Republicans in 2009 thought that Barack Obama was very liberal. It's only 52%, I think, that of Joe Biden today, and similar differences among independents. Um, and then one other change I don't think is widely appreciated, uh, which is there's been a change in the um, ideology of the electorate. Um, the number uh, one third of the electorate was uh, moderate on a five point scale in 2009, and that's dropped to 28%. Um, and so people have gone both directions, left and right. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, the growth has really been more on the left. 20% uh, of the public at that point in 2009 was very liberal or liberal, and that's grown to 28%. Um, the number of people on the conservative side has pretty much stayed flat um, or declined even slightly. Um, uh, there are more very conservatives than there were in 2009, but fewer sort of moderate conservatives. Mm -hmm. Those are the people, you know, suburban voters um, that have moved uh, a bit to the left and are more likely to vote for Democrats. And uh, Republicans are a bit in denial that they have a problem with that group. Um, that, uh, you know, the bulk of the Republican Party is con very conservative, very pro-Trump, uh, and uh, they're losing uh, swing voters. Um, and so far, Democrats have not cooperated in doing things that are going to push those voters back to Republicans. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I do think that uh, I, I do. I, I agree with what Doug said. And then Go to your point, Bill, which I think is a really good one about. Uh, so, so the, this sets the context that says, mm -hmm. given the way the ideology shifted and the number of competitive seats, we don't expect any big swings like that. But the mm -hmm. second uh, point you made was uh, very good, I thought, which was about the uh, Trump effect and primaries. Mm -hmm. He's going to be involved in all kinds of primaries. Right. And we're going to see what happens. Pri divisive primaries don't help turnout. Right. And Donald Trump is, as uh, Doug said, uh, a gigantic turnout machine. Yeah. I mean, he turns out Democrats and he turns out Republicans. So mm -hmm. I think uh, it's very important that we should be, the three of us and others, uh, also should be watching who Donald Trump's supporting. Are they successful? Right. And if they're successful in getting the nomination, does that mean uh, that, that and, and they got a Trump stamp of approval? That may well mean what Doug said, that that loses them votes uh, come the general election. Yeah, and I think uh, those who study politics at this level need to understand this is very complicated uh, or complicated, you may think. Uh, I'm looking at three Senate races here, guys, in 2022, which really show you um, how, how tricky the field is Republicans. Uh, alphabetically, we start in Alaska. Uh, Trump has endorsed Kelly Shabaka. She's a former administration commissioner in Alaska. He wants to take out Lisa Murkowski, uh, who voted to impeach him. He, uh, he's 
He said he's going to go up and campaign against her. This is very familiar turf for Murkowski, by the way. She lost in a primary in 2010, yeah. but then she actually ran as a, re, as a write-in candidate um, in the general election and was actually sent back to Washington. So here we have Trump very much with hands-on saying, I, am, I want to kick out this incumbent for not being suitably loyal. We then shift down to Arizona. Uh, Arizona, by the way, for the first time in state history, has not one but two Democratic senators. Uh, here you have the question of whether or not the state attorney general, Mark Brinovich, is going to run. Uh, Trump does not like Mr. Brinovich because Mr. Brinovich has not been very aggressive when it comes to the Maricopa County ballot review. So let's assume if Brinovich comes in, Trump may get involved with a non-Brinovich candidate to keep the rhino, whatever you want to call him, from, from getting the nomination. But then we shift to Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania here, you have two Republicans running. One is Jeff Bartos, a real estate developer. The other is Sean Parnelli, a combat veteran and uh, frequent uh, uh, talking head on Fox News. And they're actively competing for Trump's endorsement. So it's not like you can say that there is, you know, every state is the same. So in some states, Trump is going to go in and try to be the poison pill for an incumbent. Some is he's going to try to drive the nomination and others Republicans are going to just kind of, you know, try to beat each other up, trying to trying to kiss his ring. So. It's, it makes for a very choppy election, doesn't it? Yeah, so what Trump cares about is uh, people uh, declaring that he won the 2020 election. And uh, there isn't a big groundswell of the public out there that really wants to relitigate the 2020 election. Um, the only place you can get a majority in favor of uh, Trump having won the, the 2020 elections in a Republican primary. Um, and so insofar as Republicans pursue that, uh, they're making themselves look extreme and irrelevant. Uh, so I think it, it's a gift uh, to Democrats uh, um, when they do that. Right. But, you know, Dave, if you look at this, this is a becoming now a, a rich tradition for Republicans, if you will. Um, you know, in 2010, for example, you ran. Uh, you had Ken Buck running for the Senate in Colorado, who was just beyond extreme when it came to abortion, just did not play well in Colorado. Christine O'Donnell, remember her in Delaware, remember? Yes, I do. I'm not a witch. <laughs> and you had, you had, then you had Sharon Angle running against Harry Reid in Nevada. Uh, Harry yeah. Reid, the longtime boxer, was just set up for a fall. Uh, yeah. Sharon Angle comes in and Harry yeah. Reid's campaign does something very clever. They find a, a video where she called for an end to Medicare and Social Security. You know, bye bye, Sharon Angle. That's three races Republicans potentially lost there. They uh, lost a race in Indiana and um, in Missouri in 2012. We didn't go to Georgia in 2020, where Republicans lost not one but two seats that they probably should have won as well. And these things have consequences. And if you're a Republican, just you know, angry at the world and wanting a recap of 2020, you know, position heal thyself. If you do a better job of running Senate races, you have control of the Senate right now. Just think what a different world it is right now if there's a 51 or a 52 seat Republican Senate. Yeah. I mean, I think the Democrats have a pretty good shot at increasing their majority in the Senate. Uh, it's the House that is uh, a challenge for Democrats. Uh, uh, you know, it's very close in reapportionment. Uh, the, the, cushion there's about, the cushion there's about five seats right now for Democrats. Right. Um, and they're likely to lose somewhere on the order of 10, maybe even a bit more uh, because of reapportionment. Right. So the House flips, maybe the Senate um, stays Democratic. Um, that's a nice segue into our final topic here, gentlemen, which is the question of political stability in this country. Uh, 2020 broke a string of two-term presidencies. We'd been through this kind of unique stretch of history. Most people didn't recognize 
Uh, Clinton was a two-term president. I was George W. Bush, as was Barack Obama. This had happened only once previously in the history of our country, which is presidents three, four, and five. And you know what? Uh, you know the difference between the two was always startling. Uh, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe—all Virginians, all from you know a certain stretch of Western Virginia—farmers, planters, plantation owners all kind of forged from the same experience of the revolution. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, three decidedly different people. I think we can agree. But that pattern ends with uh, Trump being kicked out in 2020. But if we're talking about at least one chamber of, Con- uh, one chamber of Congress flipping in 2022, um, consider the pattern that this adds to. Um, going back to 1994, when both the House and the Senate go Republican, in 2006, they then go Democratic. In 2010, the House flips back to the Republicans follow the bouncing ball here. 2014, the Senate goes Republican. 2018, the House goes Democratic. 2020, the, the Senate goes Democratic. If this pattern holds, if Doug suggests, and the House goes Democratic, this would be the seventh time in the last 15 congressional elections that at least one chamber flipped, uh, seven times in 28 years. Uh, compare or contrast that, Dave and Doug, to the stretch from 1954 to 1994 when you had just the one flip in the Senate in 1980. How do we account for this volatility? Well, I, I account for the, only, the, the period in American history that's closest to this in terms of volatility. Uh, pretty much matches it was the period from 18 pre post Civil War through the uh, 1890s, right. and the reason for that was that was the first uh, that was the first great rise of uh, capitalism, where about 35 40 percent, and mm-hmm. now we're at 80 85 percent uh, of the world is in markets, and the same set of issues is present. There's the uh, present. There's the inequality issue. There's the migration, immigration issue. Same same sorts of issues. So I I I call these the results of. Uh, globalization and globalization gives rise to some very complicated issues. And this time around, it's much more complicated than it was in the 1890s for two reasons. One, in my view, the fact is that now now the globalization of economies is uh, 80 to 85% of the world, not 30 or 35%. And the second thing is, now this has to be done where uh, the climate change is uh, relevant, where it certainly was not relevant the first go around. So you have to make these kinds of changes and you have to do it with some consideration of what about global warming and how are you gonna deal with uh, energy costs, et cetera, et cetera. So this makes it much tougher. But I, my view is those it's, it's driven mainly by the economics of globalization. Mm-hmm. Doug? Well, Brady's views is a, is a lot longer than mine. Uh, I would compare the sort of current era, the you know 1993 um, on to the um, you know the 1945 to uh, 1980 era. Um, in the immediate post World War II period, you had a world where. Uh, Democrats had a substantial lead in party identification, and most people voted consistently for Democrats for Congress. So um, there's only a two-year period there where uh, Congress had a uh, uh, Republican uh, majority in either house. Um, But at the presidential level, uh, you flip back and forth between landslides for Democrats in 1964 and Republicans in 1972 and 1980. Um, So it was fluid at the presidential level and relatively 
um, constant uh, Democratic majorities in Congress. In, fast forward to the post-1993 period, you've got two parties um, which are relatively closely matched uh, nationally. So Democrats have a slight advantage in party ID, um, but Republicans make up a chunk of that based on uh, the Electoral College. Um, but the big difference is people are voting the same way at the presidential and the congressional level because um, you had the disappearance of uh, Democrats and white Democrats in the South and moderate Republicans in uh, the Northeast and elsewhere. And so now we live in a world where um, two closely matched parties, consistent voting at the congressional and presidential level, and that's a that leads to frequent flips back and forth and who controls the presidency and houses of Congress. Right. But you saw in 2020, Joe Biden won the uh, national vote, by, I think, by about, what, about 4%, Doug? Um, yes. Now, granted, that's a lot of California and Massachusetts and Illinois and New York at play, but you didn't see a pickup. He lost seats in the House. He had a split yeah. verdict. So, how, yeah. so why, why the split verdict then? Nationally, it was a pretty close election. Um, you had Biden winning big majorities the way Hillary Clinton did on the coast, right. uh, but actually uh, losing. Uh, Biden was about equal in the rest of the country. Clinton lost if you subtract out California and New York. Um, so, uh, you know, big majorities in the popular vote on the coast don't help you uh, win congressional seats. Uh, Dave, I look at the American map and I see Republicans cannot compete on the West Coast. And we have a recall election coming up in California in a couple months. And I would just, if I had to wage your money on this, I would wage that the Democratic governor will be returned to office or he'll stay in office, I should say. But Republican candidates, for the most part, cannot compete in Washington, Oregon and California. Um, conversely, Democratic candidates suffer to win in the Deep South, where Democrats once thrived. Is this is this par for the course for American politics or is this sort of geographical Balkanization, something new. Well, we have. Well, it looks. It looks. Uh, it looks. The 1890s look uh, quite similar in the breakdown of the country. Uh, you do have f fewer competitive elections at the pre at the present. The elections are closer, but s states are less competitive. And one one measure of that is split state senators. Mm -hmm. You used to have states where there'd be a Democrat and a Republican. And the number of states that have that arrangement has dropped dramatically over the past uh, 20 years or so. And the reason for that, I think, is because you know, once you get the party sorted, so Democrats are liberal to moderate and Republicans are moderate to conservative without any of the other mix in there. I think uh, in, in those sorts of cases, you, 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 you get that geographic pattern that you see. Can I throw one other theory at you, Doug, which is the idea of social mobility. People, if you live in New York or Pennsylvania, let's say, and you're not happy with the Democratic Party, uh, you think they become a bunch of flaming socialists, maybe you become of a certain age, you move to the South. I'm going to South Carolina next week, for example. My sister lives in a community full of people. Uh, you see a lot of Blue Lives Matters flags flying and things like that. They've come to South Carolina in part for jobs, but also come because they like the political climate. So, so could you make the argument that perhaps part of what we see here is people are moving around to the country and maybe maybe in part their choice is not just driven economically, but also politically? 
Um, there's a bit of that, but uh, migration has actually helped Democrats in the South in places like North Carolina, Georgia. Maybe uh, Texas. Or, yeah. te yes. Um, no, I, I think, you know, the big thing going on is the uh, Democratic base has become minorities and uh, affluent, uh, educated, uh, you know, college graduates. Um, and uh, the migration, the people who move to the uh, to the coast are disproportionate, uh, you know, residential mobility are disproportionately higher educated people who have a better job market uh, by moving. Uh, and then you have the growth of minorities, partly by immigration. Um, uh, I think that explains more of it than uh, uh, your in-laws. <laughs> Dave? <laughs> I think the uh, case that people move to be like others is uh, overstated, but uh, I do think there is something there that um, pe pe people, there, there are a lot of numbers that show that people, that, that uh, the New York Times recently had a piece that actually you could put in your zip code and find out how far, uh, how, how Democratic or Republican it was, and then how far you had to go to find, uh, how far you had to go to find uh, a precinct or anywhere where there were a similar number of Republicans, uh, and as in the case of Palo Alto, where we are. And, and the answer is, uh, it, look, it looks pretty, it looks like people live together more. It's a funny yeah, story. Sorry about the cheap shot on that uh, bill, but, um, you know, I mean, no, it's, a, it's, not a cheap, it's not a cheap shot, actually. It's a very, very funny story here. I don't get too far off topic, but my sister lives outside of Charleston. My sister is not all that liberal, but boy, she did not like Donald Trump. And she um, she and her husband moved into this nice complex and they uh, had a block party. And the first block party, guess what? About 20 people wearing MAGA hats. And before she knows it, she's in a conversation with people who do not want to get vaccinated. And I think Bill Gates is putting a chip in your shoulder. And, <laughs> and her thought was, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> He put a chip in his wife's shoulder. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm sorry, Doug, I cut you off. You were going to make a point. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's what you see is that when people move, uh, they do pick the place they live uh, based on its attractiveness to them and a whole bunch of dimensions. It's just that politics is, for most people, not the most important dimension. Um, and you can easily move to South Carolina um, and in, you know, some precincts in Charleston find uh, lots of Democrats. It's certainly the case in, um, you know, where I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, when I go back and visit my parents, the neighborhood mm -hmm. they live in votes solidly Democratic in uh, what has become one of the reddest states. Right. All right, gentlemen, final question. We may not be seeing each other for a while. I'm headed out for July. Um, Brady, I assume, is maybe going up to uh, Montana to do a little fishing. No, I'm taking care of my wife who had a hip operation. Oh, sorry to hear that. Oh, Caroline. Caroline on that. Yeah, that's that. Anyway, we may not be uh, getting together for a little while. So in the time um, uh, until we do meet again, um, give the listeners an idea what they should be looking for in terms of polling information. Are there any sleeper issues out there you're looking at? Are you looking at crime? Are you looking at immigration? Are you looking at COVID? What, uh, what's kind of looming out there? I get the impression that uh, the voters would like the summer off and the return to normality uh, that you know, the brouhaha over critical race theory, I think, is a pretty narrow slice of the population. And um, there's not much that is either 
that's moved people either on the moderate left or right um, that, that I can see in issues at this point. Hey, Dave, I'm going to give you the final, final word for you, Dave, and I think your colleague is suggesting that we need to turn the turn into the French and basically take a month off. Yeah, I uh, no, I, I don't, I don't disagree. With Doug said, I, I don't get, I don't see, I don't see the the economic issues mm -hmm. that Biden has proposed. First of all, I don't think he's going to get a lot of it, but more importantly, those issues don't seem to be driving moderate and uh, conservative voters in the Democratic Party that far away from Biden as they did uh, with Obama on, on the Affordable Care Act. And I thought the most important thing Doug said there was one of the important things he said was the number of people who thought that uh, Obama was very liberal. Mm. And, they, and the more that thought that, the more voted uh, Republican in 2010, that number for Biden has not uh, has not moved very much at all. He's like the flatline bill that you described is still there, yeah. so I'm looking for changes in that. And uh, and I think over the next uh, three four months, not much is going to happen. Hey guys, I enjoyed the podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you in person on campus. You're in your office now, Dave. Hopefully, we all, uh, as Doug said, return to normalcy this September yep. and all physically see each other. So, gentlemen, good talk. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media, but Doug Rivers is. His handle is at Doug underscore Rivers. Rivers spelled as you might expect it, R-I-V-E-R-S. And his polling firm, YouGov. Uh, it's also on Twitter. Its handle is at YouGov. That's spelled Y-O-U-G-O-V. YouGov, what the world thinks. I mentioned our website beginning of the broadcast. That's www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of David Brady and Doug Rivers to their colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics, talking about the latest going-ons in California. Take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.